if anybody uh, is in a position where they owe back money to the government uh, with interest, that's not a pleasant thing to do. And when it's $100 million, it's probably just as unpleasant, if not more. Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and as usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? We're doing well. We have a puppy. You have the puppy now. Yeah, we got the puppy. Um, the puppy is super cute. Of course. Super cute. And the kids are really excited. Aww. So today was the first school day with the puppy. We had the puppy over the weekend. And then today was the first school day with the puppy. And we noticed that the kids were more focused today. Really? Yeah. I think it was because when they got their school thing done, they could then go play with the puppy. Okay. That makes sense. So they were like on the ball for the school stuff and then when they'd wrap that up they were in there torturing the dog <laughs> so that worked that was actually pretty good timing then you guys played that right on how to you know keep virtual learning going and having uh -huh. a reward at the end I, I like that i gotta say i wasn't anticipating that but i, would, I wasn't really anticipating the level of excitement either <laughs> the, perhaps dumb of me to not anticipate that but they're super excited and the interesting thing is that the puppy in a couple of days has already figured out that like the kids are friends <laughs> these so, are right. playmates huh yeah, it perks right up when it sees any of the kids when it sees me it's kind of like yeah <laughs> eh, that guy when it sees the kids it's, it's all joy oh is there is there a favorite yet does she go to like one child more than the other not really okay mm -hmm. they're all a little bit different though they do different things like the oldest is more snuggle play with her mm -hmm. the next one the 10 year old is more pick her up and carry her around the house everywhere <laughs> the eight-year-old um plays with her but then he'll do funny things like to so we have a fish the fish's name is mustachio mustachio i there's love that long, there's a long line of mustachios let me tell you no. <laughs> very it's a very deep family tree and so he's holding the dog and he's walking towards his room and nicole says well where are you going and and he says i got i gotta show the puppy mustachio i they need to meet so he's taking the dog in to meet Mustachio. Aww. So that's sort of what he's, he's sort of making sure that the dog has become acquainted with everybody in every room. Aww. And then the youngest is just excited. Mm -hmm. She's just excited. So it's Aww, been, fun. It's I miss been, having puppies. Yeah. Today the kids were complaining that the puppy was biting them. And I just said, there's nothing I can do about that. That is what puppies do. Yep, that's going to go on for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the puppy hasn't even started eating your things. So yeah, <laughs> let's let's not get too carried away with the biting. <laughs> oh. Well, I thought today we would talk about the uh, New York Times article on the Trump tax returns because it seems to be of quite a bit of interest. And every now and then, the world throws a little nugget the way of the tax geeks of the world, where it's like, hey, you guys matter. 
the other 99.9% of the time we ignore that you exist. But like this one little in this one little moment, like you people matter. So that's a little bit what this New York Times article has done. All of a sudden, all the tax people matter. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so, so I thought we could talk about it at least. Uh, talk about some of the kind of salient points in it, and really to just discuss those points for illustrative purposes more than a commentary on politics. And so ground rules, I believe, okay. are necessary. So first of all, uh, you and I have no special inside information about the sources that were used for the article. Nope, we don't. So we're, we're not in the Trump organization. We don't work at the IRS. We're not at the New York Times. So I think we just have to assume for purposes of discussion that what is in the article is accurate. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it'll make for a very boring discussion. But uh, so we're just going to assume that what's in the article is accurate so that then we can take pieces of it and then have a discussion about what it means more from an objective kind of like tax planning perspective. That's the first thing. And the second thing is to sort of point out and acknowledge that different people have different views of what the information in the article means on a broader basis. And there's nothing we can do about that. We're not going to reconcile those views on the article. So just understanding that up front as ground rules, I think everybody uh, if you just play along with those rules, then hopefully this discussion will make sense. Um, and hopefully uh, no one will feel like their their political persuasion is being attacked one way or the other. Uh, I, I think those are good ground rules. Yes, okay. absolutely. I think, like you said, we're the, the tax nerds. So we just really want to look at the article from the tax perspective and see what's going on, really dive into it. Like you said, of course, there's going to be emotions brought up with this article that is completely understandable. That's not for today's discussion. We're just going to get into the geeky tax details. Yep, pretty much. Pretty much. And that's not to say that like you and I don't have our own political convictions. Mm -hmm. Like, of course we do. But for purposes of like this discussion and certainly for purposes of our profession as well and what we do for clients, um, our personal political persuasions are not that importance. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have to look at these sorts of issues somewhat. Uh, I'll say objectively, I was going to say robotically, but I don't think it's robotic, but because mm -hmm. we, we do try to be creative, but it it's uh, at least objectively, you kind of have to look at the stuff. Um, and we just deal with whatever the tax code says. Mm -hmm. uh, if the tax code said everybody should pay 80% tax, we would deal with that. If it said um, nobody should pay anything more than 10% tax, we would deal with that too. So it's just like whatever, whatever we have, that's what we deal with. Exactly. All right. So the first thing I thought we could talk about is that the article says Trump paid $750 in tax in 2016 and 17. The article also says that he paid no income tax in 10 of the last 15 years. But I think when you include the the 2016 and 17, it means in 12 of the last 15 years, he either paid zero or he paid $750 per year. Okay. So much of that appears to be driven by business losses, largely from real estate and, and deductions that come from owning real estate. So we can talk about that a little bit. And then some of it came from credits, tax credits that he had also from real estate. Uh, 
it's actually fairly common for people in the real estate industry, just based on the way that the tax code is set up to have low tax. Uh, they either have gains that you can flip into additional properties without recognizing the gains. So you don't have to pay, say, capital gains. Oftentimes when you sell a piece of real estate, so long as you do the transaction correctly and you you do what's called a 1031 exchange so you you can just roll the capital gains into the new pro the the new property and you defer the payment of the capital gains so that's very common so you can have a, a quote unquote it cash event or income event and not pay taxes but in addition to that um you get to depreciate mm -hmm. improvements to property so you don't get to depreciate land land doesn't depreciate in value but if you like put a foundation you build walls and ceilings and things those things that yep. you put on the land they depreciate because they don't last forever and so the tax law allows you to take depreciation deductions and the tax law also allows for those depreciation deductions to be funded by financing lending and what what it appears that the trump organization has done, and this is not terribly uncommon if you're in the real estate industry, although that full acknowledgement that Trump is not 100% in the real estate industry, like just get that out, like he's really, his main business drivers are apparently a couple of profitable commercial properties that he's had an interest in, but does not manage in Manhattan and then licensing. Mm -hmm. Those are like, those are his real income streams. But for a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, people in the real estate industry, it's very common for the real estate projects to be financed through bank financing. And then at least the partnership tax rules and a lot of real estate structuring is structured as partnerships for this reason. The partnership tax rules allow you as a partner to basically get credit for the money that was borrowed and used to do the project in this in the sense that your quote unquote tax basis is increased by your share of that debt and when you have a tax basis in a partnership you're allowed to take deductions like depreciation deductions up to your share of the liabilities or up to your your uh basis in the partnership. I'm trying to be very simple with this to the extent that I can. So let's say um, you and I, Rachel, have a partnership. We borrow $100 from the bank. Mm -hmm. We take that $100 and we build a building. We're 50-50 partners. Everything is 50-50. You get allocated, even though you know, maybe we put nominal money into the company. Uh, we get allocated, each of us get allocated $50 of the debt. Mm -hmm. And so our bait, my basis and your basis in the partnership is $50 in the eyes of the tax law. And when you have basis in your partnership interest, you then have something against which you can take deductions. That's the way the accounting rules work. So if the, if the first year the depreciation deduction is $10, you get $5 of depreciation depreciation deduction, I get $5 of depreciation deduction, even though we might not have put $5 into the project. We only borrowed the money to put into the project. So, I'll, so I say that as a little bit of an education piece that in the real estate industry, it's very common for owners, developers, et cetera, of the real estate to pay very low taxes because of these rules that allow are very favorable and allow you to take depreciation deductions. So it looks like some of that is the reason for Trump's uh, losses, but he was also apparently losing money 
on a lot of the golf courses, pouring money in and not getting a lot of money back. Uh, mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, there's also too a part in there, um, the historic preservation piece. Yeah. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong. It was a, it was like a, a postal building. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's the postal building in Washington, DC. It's right on Pennsylvania Avenue, just down the street from the white house. It's a beautiful building. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so they bought the building. I don't know who all is in that group that bought it. I have no connection to it at all, but apparently they bought the building, put a bunch of money into it hundreds of millions of dollars into it to restore it. And then uh, because they had done that, they qualified for some historic preservation tax credits mm -hmm. of apparently a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like hundreds of millions of tax credits. Yeah, as I understood uh, the article, that is why in 2016 and 17, his income tax was his income tax liability, I should say, was so low that it were these it was this historic preservation credit that he was able to use in those years mm -hmm. that reduced down his taxes. So, yeah, it's another um, it's another way that the real estate industry gets benefited under the tax code. Those kinds of credits, there is sort of a long history of these types of credits that are meant to incentivize um, real estate development. Mm -hmm. And obviously with historic preservation, it's meant to incentivize um, developers to not just raise old buildings to the ground, but to actually try to preserve them in some way. They don't have to be preserved 100%, but to be preserved in some way. Um, there's there's similar other credits. New Markets Tax Credit was one that was uh, available not too long ago. That was one where if you uh, did real estate development in certain areas, you got a big tax credit. They were really run and driven largely by banks that would put money into the deals, and then the banks were allowed to take the tax credits. And so um, there's a lot of New market tax credit deals that were being done a couple of years ago. Uh, the one that's really popular now is the Opportunity Zone Fund rules that allow, basically, allow someone to take capital gains and then defer and reduce the capital gains by rolling the money into an Opportunity Zone fund, which then has to improve real estate or basically bring in business to certain areas that are deemed opportunity zones, certain zip codes that were chosen by all the counties across the country. Um, interestingly, a lot of the zip codes that were chosen, say, in the Phoenix area, were not necessarily downtrodden areas. <laughs> uh, like downtown Scottsdale, I believe, was an opportunity zone, but that downtown Scottsdale was not a downtrodden area necessarily, but that was, uh, there were some uh, census statistics that you had to fit within, I guess, sometown, somehow downtown Scottsdale fit within those metrics. So yeah, the real the real estate industry has a lot of ways to, uh, to benefit under the tax code. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a really good point to hone in on is that it's this is not an unordinary thing. Um, that, like you said, this, this is just typical kind of built into the tax code that we see this. Obviously, the normal business person might not, you know, have these has have as much losses or credits to this extent um, that we see in the Trump organization have in this report. But still, this is ordinary things that a, a prudent business person would take advantage of under the code. Yeah, fair, fairly ordinary. I think there's a couple of things in there that people are questioning about whether they're a, a, either 
aggressive or evasive, depending on how you view them. Uh, but yeah, it's it's absolutely true. Now, of course, um, you can sort of view the the seven hundred fifty dollars one of two ways. I'm guessing, and maybe you can come up with a third or fourth way, but. Um, or at least what I'm hearing. Number one, uh, people saying, you know, I'm a school teacher and I paid $20,000 in taxes. Why does Donald Trump only have to pay $750 in taxes? It's a, look, it's a fair point. It's mm-hmm. a fair point. Um, and the uh, the reverse being, well, everybody in business would do the exact same thing. Nobody's required to pay more tax than necessary. And if you're smart and you can use the code to your advantage, why not? So what's wrong with what he did? And it's a reasonable argument as well. I don't think anybody can fault somebody for following the laws, assuming mm-hmm. that's what that's what they did. Granted, most people who only have $750 in tax liability don't live at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, yes. mm-hmm. and they also don't live in Trump Tower. Exactly. So I think that's where the inequity is being sniffed out by most people who are offended by what's happening. So, yeah. and that's a fair point. Uh, you know, I'm uh, this. We're not really going to debate that point uh, tonight, but uh, you know, it's it's reasonable, and mm-hmm. both. Frankly, both points are reasonable. Whether one is is the right policy is a different question, but both points are reasonable. Neither point of view is unreasonable. Yep, absolutely. I think like just like you said, it comes down to a policy question at that point. And going forward, you know, what kind of um, policy should we put in place to, you know, either go one way or the other and which side of the coin do you stand on? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's a that's a broader that's a broader question, but I, uh, as as we'll point out, a lot of these rules have existed regardless of who was in the White House. And I think we some especially in an election year, we sort of pretend like it's a one or the other proposition in American politics. But in reality, uh, the proof does not necessarily play that out, at least in terms of the tax code. So we'll we'll get into a couple of uh, those issues here in just a second. So the next thing that the New York Times article points out is that apparently in 2010, uh, Trump took a $72.9 million refund or claimed a $72.9 million refund Mm -hmm. that was largely driven by some quote unquote net operating loss carrybacks that he used for uh, 2007, uh, 2005 and 2006. I think I'm getting those right. Uh, If if I'm getting them wrong by one or two years, somebody can uh, yell at me or send us bad comments. But I think that's right in, t- in terms of the years. And so uh, it's apparently the fact that he has got this refund and the refund is now under audit that he has claimed he can't release his tax returns. Mm-hmm. Um, so just maybe a little slight bit of context to that. And the article points this out too, which is accurate, but the the Joint Committee on Taxation has to approve refunds of more than $2 million dollars. Uh, so if you're getting a substantial check like that from the U.S. Treasury, it's substantial enough basically that somebody in Congress has to look at it because they're in charge of the purse strings, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Despite what you may hear, they still are in charge of the purse strings. And um, so apparently this issue has gone to the Joint Committee, but the way they do things is such that 
the identity of the taxpayers and sort of the the details of the refund case is not made publicly known even among people in Congress. So people in Congress don't even have access to the information that the committee would have access to. And apparently there's some question about the deductions that were used to uh, create these net operating losses that allegedly in in the article are driving the the audit and the fight over the audit on th these uh, this refund claim. Why it's taken so long? I mean, it's been three yeah. three years now, more than three years now at least. Um, why it's taken so long for them to resolve the issue? Of course, we don't know because we don't have really the facts. Nobody really knows what the facts of the case are and what's been going on. But it appears that the issue in the audit is whether the net operating losses are deductible losses. So let me try and break that down just a little bit. Some of these losses apparently came from Trump walking away from some partnerships that owned casinos in Atlantic City. And so if you have a, a quote unquote worthless security, uh, if it's truly worthless, you know, not worth anything to you, mm -hmm. um, you can abandon it. And if you abandon it, then you can take a deduction for your loss, your business loss. And apparently that's what he did. And those losses arose in 2008 and nine. There may have been other business losses as well that arose in 2008 and nine. And what happened in 2008 and nine, of course, was the Great Recession. And as part of the recovery efforts of the government and the Great Recession, what Congress and the Obama administration approved was a change to the net operating loss carry back rules. We talked about this a little bit with Nicole Harrigan when she was on uh, the podcast, because these are these are very mm -hmm. uh, favored rules to tinker with in economic downturns and economic good times, too, because they tinker with the rules when when things are good. So what the net operating loss carry back rules basically say is if you have a net operating loss, say, in year one, you can carry back those losses a few years. It used to be you could carry them back for two years. So at the time when just before Trump had these losses, um, you could carry them back for two years. But the the Great Recession recovery changes said, now you can carry them back four years. And so Trump carried back those losses back to a few years where he had high income tax, uh, in particular 2005 and six, in which apparently he had somewhere around $57 million worth of taxable tax, income tax liability from money that he had earned on The Apprentice. And then there was there was another like 13 million in 2007. I can't remember where the 13 million came from. I don't think it was The Apprentice. It was I think it was from something else. So he had all this this income tax liability in those years. But because of this Great Recession kind of Recovery Act change, he then took these net operating losses from these worthless securities, et cetera, and carried them back and claimed a refund. Mm -hmm. So that's the mechanics of what happens. Yeah, and I think it's to important uh, important to point out too is you know you mentioned the audit and you know why there's this subject of an audit. So you said it has to be worthless securities, literally worthless to someone. Mm -hmm. You cannot get anything in return. You truly have to walk away from the, these securities. So there's question as to whether. Um, Trump received a 5%, I believe it was a partnership share uh, in, in a new uh, entity, 
And so if he got a 5% share, that's not worthless. Doesn't matter how much it was, that's not worthless. And so that's now why we have this audit kind of triggered and to see whether or not it truly was a worthless security and then whether or not he really has or is, is entitled to that $72.9 million refund. Right. Yeah. So that's what the article uh, claims is that la that's the big issue. Again, why it takes years and years to determine that, I mm -hmm. don't know. But uh, it seems strange to me that it would. But that it's, you know, it's a complicated, messy situation. So it could very well be that um, it's a hugely fact intensive endeavor. And it might be that the IRS doesn't have unlimited resources to throw at the case. And so it can just drag on and on. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that that apparently is the issue. Also, if he has to pay the money back, he has to pay it back with interest. Yeah. And according to The New York Times, the total amount he'd have to pay back is somewhere close to $100 million. So he has this potential $100 million liability that he would owe back to the U.S. government, uh, which is not pleasant if anybody uh, is in a position where they owe back money to the government uh, with interest. That's not a pleasant thing to do. And when it's $100 million, it's probably just as unpleasant, if not more. So Absolutely. Even, even for Donald Trump, I'm sure that would be very unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, so there, and it seems that the fact that he paid $72.9 million in taxes in those years is at least in part the basis for his claims and his lawyers' claims that he paid millions of dollars in taxes. And they're not wrong. You mm -hmm. do have, if you, if you're claiming a refund, you actually have to claim back money that you did write the check for. Mm -hmm. But if you get it refunded to you, then you know, if you're accounting for it, you'd have like a positive number on one side and then the opposite negative number on the other side and the net would be zero. So you didn't really pay anything. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, if that's the basis for their claim that he paid uh, millions of dollars in taxes, it's not really accurate. But uh, but we don't really know that, too, because they're not super clear about those claims. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, it's uh, the article is pointed out, which is a good point, is that, you know, when, when we're talking about paying taxes and then an income, ta taxable income, we have to also look at employment taxes, right? So a lot mm -hmm. of people are just throwing around the word taxes on, oh, the Trump organization has paid, you know, millions of dollars in taxes. Well, let's define taxes. You know, we're lawyers. We love, def love to define our terms. You know, is it just employer taxes? So looking at payroll, Social Security, Medicare, things like that. Or is it, are we looking at actual income taxes? So that's right. a good point too, for just someone when you're analyzing this situation to make sure you're clear on what your terms are. Yeah, that's absolutely accurate. And it's, it's worth pointing out that it could be the case that his 1040 is not necessarily a snapshot of his net worth. Mm -hmm. um, the 1040 is really just a snapshot of business and profit making dealings from year to year that happen to fit within a, a calendar year. Um, it's not necessarily a net, in, a net worth snapshot so that you got You have to kind of disassociate those two things. And absolutely, you're 100 percent correct. Um, what kind of tax he has paid over the years is a relevant question. And income tax is one thing. Employment taxes is something totally different. Mm -hmm. 
Well, so another point in this uh, article that I was really interested in when I read it, Brent, was mm-hmm. the Seven Springs property. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because it's absolutely a stunning piece of property. It's just a gorgeous mansion to look at. Um, but just all the the interesting um, kind of techniques that were used um, for that property. So one thing that kind of intrigued me was that you know, the article talks about how the Trump family kind of holds their retreats there. That's where they all go to relax and go together. But it, the property is considered an investment property. Mm-hmm. And so it being an investment property, they get to um, take a lot of deductions for property taxes, for example. Um, I think the article said there were about over $2 million in property taxes that were deducted. And then in addition to all of those deductions, um, they were able to do a conservation easement, um, which allowed them to take almost $120 million in deductions. And that's also including a few other properties um, that they've created conservation easements for. Right. Yeah. So the, you know, the controversy to the extent there is one uh, with the Seven Springs property, as you point out, is first that they treat it as an investment property, but it appears that a lot of the use of the property is personal use. Mm-hmm. And so they're running business investment type deductions through that property that may in fact be personal expenses, personal expenses being non-deductible and the business expenses or investment expenses being deductible, including the property taxes. And um, in the most recent Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, they of course put a cap on property tax, state and local property tax deductions at $10,000. So $2 million is a lot more than Mm $10,000. And so, you know, you might kind of scratch your head and wonder like, well, why do you get to take that level of property taxes? Because the property taxes were being viewed as basically a business expense rather than a personal expense. Um, and then the conservation easement is a charitable deduction planning technique uh, that's authorized in the Internal Revenue Code. And most states have state ta- statutes that also cover conservation easements. The idea behind a conservation easement is essentially that you put restrictions on the use of the property and the restrictions can be for uh, a certain number of things are kind of broad categories, but it can include just preserving open space, for example. Mm-hmm. And then you you would contribute those restrictions in the form of a easement, which is an interest in the property, um, to a charity. Sometimes the easement goes to like a government, like you could you know donate the conservation easement, say, to the federal government or to your state or local government. And very often the conservation easement is is um, contributed to a charity that's essentially set up for the purpose of preserving open spaces and things like that. You know, in Southern Arizona, there's quite a few of those uh, types of charities. And the big ones really are to preserve riparian areas, not a lot of them in the desert, you know, preserve riparian areas, preserve rangeland, et cetera. Um, and the idea is that these properties will then be will then be free from development. Mm-hmm. 
within certain limitations. You, the property owner, are still allowed to retain the right to use the property. Um, you're allowed to develop the property within restrictions. You can, you can build certain amounts of buildings and structures on the property, but you can use it for your own purpose. You don't have to allow the general public onto the property in most instances. And so it seems, although of course it's not 100% clear because we don't have all the facts, from the article, but it seems that what they did and say with Seven Springs is they put a conservation easement on the property, likely to preserve like open space or something similar. And then they reserved to them, contributed, sorry, contributed that easement to a charity in order to get a deduction. And then they retained the right to use the property. Um, the the charitable deduction is equal to whatever the, the fair market value of the conservation easement is and basically what you know it's not like you can just go buy one of those at a countertop mm -hmm. um that's a valuation that's done by a qualified appraiser and yet you have to have a qualified appraisal done to value the conservation easement and whatever they say that value is that's the value of your charitable deduction apparently on seven springs and three other properties together there was something like 120 million dollars worth of conservation easements so that's a pretty healthy amount of deductions mm -hmm. absolutely and the conservation easements have been uh, somewhat controversial in the in the context of buildings. And so sometimes the conservation easements were kind of being used to like preserve historic facades on buildings, et cetera. Um, and th those are very controversial. Oftentimes the conservation easement deductions get disallowed because people get the technical requirements of the conservation easement wrong, or they don't have a qualified appraisal or some other um, technical box that they haven't checked. And so if you, if you search, if you're really bored and you're like, I want to <laughs> find out what's going on in this area and you like search IRS rulings on these conservation easements. There's just a litany of them um, because it is a fairly technical area. So it's not something you would just jump in and do on your own necessarily. And so it's the fact that they did conservation easements to me indicates, among other things that we've talked about already, that this is an organization that relies pretty heavily on uh, specialized tax advisors, because otherwise you don't do these things because mm -hmm. you because you don't have enough of the specialization to do it right. Um, and you get yourself into big trouble by doing it wrong because you basically because you spend a bunch of money, you give somebody an easement on your property and then you don't get the tax deduction. Yeah, that's a bad result if you're trying to do one of these transactions. So you got to basically spend money for an expert to tell you how to do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, so then the last thing uh, that really interested me in this article was the consulting fees. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other fees that just intrigue me. I mean, it doesn't cost me $70,000 a year to take care of my hair really um, and I, I love my hairstylist so I, mean, I guess i got a ganga deal but uh these consulting fees are really interesting so the articles talked about how between in in between 2010 to 2018 there was 26 million dollars in these consulting fees whatever this term whatever that phrase means and in 2017 in particular they saw that over almost around uh, $750,000 was paid to Ivanka Trump and so one thing that the article 
uh, brought up is talking about how this might be a method of transferring wealth to your children or to other family members and getting around transfer taxes. So getting around gift taxes, or if you were trying to give to grandchildren or other descendants, getting around the GST tax. Um, I think that's a really interesting point to make. Uh, personally, I never thought of that before. Um, have you kind of heard more about that before, Brent? Yeah, you see it come up from time to time. Um, I'd say in a broader context, anytime you have a vague term to describe a large payment to an insider, like a family member, oftentimes in the tax context, it has at least the sheen of questionability to it. Mm -hmm. um, the sheen of legitimacy to it. But um, so let me give you one example. This is a totally unrelated to Trump example. So I <laughs> am a fanatic fan of a soccer team in England called Arsenal in London and have been for a very long time. And Arsenal is owned by a billionaire in in uh, the U.S. named Stan Kroenke. He also owns uh the LA Rams. Yeah, he owns uh, the some of the sports teams in the Denver area. So he's sort of they sort of have this little sports empire, but it includes Arsenal Football Club in London, England. And so a couple of years in a row, uh, in the financials that came out, the Cronkies had paid themselves like two million pounds for consulting fees. And this was a big controversy because uh, it was such a vague term. It seemed meaningless, first of all, because it wasn't clear like, well, what did they consult on exactly? And why was it worth two million pounds? And it looked or at least appeared to some supporters of the club that this was really just a a uh, veiled way to suck money out of the team and repatriate it back to the U.S. essentially. Um, and so these kinds of vague sorts of fees, I think, are always subject to question. It's mm -hmm. very difficult to tell what what does that even mean? Consulting, what does that even mean? It could be anything. Mm -hmm. Also, if you think about um, paying that kind of a fee to a family member, it's highly likely that the Trump organization understands, say, what the income tax liability outlook for Ivanka Trump is going to be during a year when they pay her close to $750,000 in consulting fees. And it's likely that they have determined, although of course we don't know this for sure, but it's likely that they've determined that paying her that fee and having her, say, pay the income tax on that fee is cheaper than gifting it to her and potentially paying a 40% gift tax mm -hmm. on the gift. And let's say, for example, that you know Ivanka has, to pick on Ivanka for a second, has an interest in an entity that owns a property that just did a big conservation easement deal. And so she's getting a big charitable income tax deduction. That might be the year that you pay a consulting fee, a mm -hmm. substantial consulting fee. You know, those sorts of games um, are red flags for the IRS. And um, you can see why, because it's difficult to tell what they are. Precisely. Yeah, especially just, yeah, in, in terms of the phrase consulting fees, and then when you've got other business expenses, other fees that just are typically normal and then you would, you know, see it on a day-to-day -day basis. For example, I think you mentioned before the, the $200,000 photography fees that were paid. I mean, that's a little bit more, I would say, than, you know. That's a lot of money. 
Yeah, you know, if I, my wedding photographer wasn't that much money. Um, <laughs> so it's, yeah, like you said, it's, it's definitely red flags that you just kind of question it when you see those kind of expenses being deducted. Right, right. So, you know, there's those sorts of things too. I don't know if those are issues that are part of the audit and if the audit expanded into things beyond um, the net operating losses. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a it's a curious one. The consulting fees is a really curious one. You know, the article goes into detail about consulting fees that were paid in countries on deals that seemed less than above board. Uh, and obviously, if if uh, those consulting fees were actually bribes, we do have laws in the United States that say that you're not allowed to bribe foreign governments or officials to get deals done in foreign countries and you certainly cannot deduct expenses you can't deduct your uh, your shakedown money or your under the table bribery money that's not a tax deductible expense so those sorts of uh, issues are raised in the article they don't necessarily go into detail about specific uh, uh, specific facts that they have that show that that's exactly what the fees were but it obviously when those fees are being paid um in authoritarian countries it raises the question of whether they were being paid for legitimate purposes yeah exactly all right well i think we've done this to death probably (laughs) but uh it's a very interesting article and certainly interesting from the perspective of a practitioner and seeing some of the things that the Trump organization was doing, uh, most of which, uh, obviously, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about what their business was involved in. But again, if you assume that the article is accurate factually, it's kind of like a lot of the transactions that are in there are kind of like, yeah, that's about what I would have expected mm-hmm. from that kind of a company. Um, again, whether that is just a company doing a good job of saving money on taxes or evidence of inequity in the tax code uh, or both is sort of a discussion for another day but that uh, at least objectively speaking on its face it, it has some some interesting tax little tidbits in it yeah absolutely i think this article just brings up a good point for people to start start mulling over and thinking about in terms of like you said a lot of people it's you know, unless you're a tax geek like us, you don't usually look into it a little bit further. But when you see an article like this, it just kind of highlights, um, you know, different provisions that people can take advantage of in the tax code. And like you said, whether or not you think it's, you know, just doing your due diligence as a business person or whether it really highlights the inequities. I think this is a good article to just really think and start thinking, all right, we are in election year. What, you know, for everyone out there, people should just vote and think about, you know, how you want your policies to be in the future. Yep, exactly. And as I, as I point out, I mean, these some of these policies are policies that both sides uh, support and have enacted. So I Hopefully, it's not so much a, an us versus them uh, issue. I think it's a broader issue to the extent that um, someday we have the the very worthy debate about whether the whether our tax policies are actually in line with what they ought to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that question is actually a nonpartisan question because it's it's sort of a values and objective reasoning type of question that's not really a political question at all Mm -hmm. so uh, not in the sense of political parties anyways yeah couldn't agree more all right rachel well it's been fun 
Yeah, we'll it's have, been fun. We'll have to do, keep doing these podcast things. Yeah, you know, just we'll keep on going, right? I guess I yeah. guess we're kind of good at them, right? No one's really yelled at us so far. No one has yelled at us yet. <laughs> this may do it. <laughs> this That's may do true. it. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.